Welcome to the fifth episode of the Hashish Inn. I'm your host, Sharag Mamir. Today, I'm stoked to have one of the best sifters in the game, Todd, aka the Dry Sift Jedi from Resin Ranch Extractions, based out of Sebastopol, California. Thank you How so you much, Todd. Doing? Thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, so, you know, thanks for sitting down with me. It's a pleasure, man. Thanks for coming on. So the first thing I kind of wanted to bring up is something that I talked to you about just like a minute the other day, which was the event happening in Spanibus, the Masters of Hashish. The Legends of Hash. Oh, Legends of Hash. I'm sorry. Yeah, the Legends of Hash. And Rosin essentially taking first place at the event. Yeah, uh, I can't really, you know, speak too much of it because I wasn't, I wasn't personally invited. However, uh, a hash was there. BJ from Sog Army is uh, in with that crowd, so he was there. He got an invite and was there. And I have nothing against Rosin. It's that's that's not the situation. It's just for me, a kid from Wisconsin who was always looking into the cannabis industry. You know, I guess with. As a fan, I guess you could say, kind of in awe of like all these people that get to do all, you know, basically live the my dream. And uh, for me, the pinnacle kind of was always Legends of Hash. You always heard of these stories like on Hash Church and from Bubble Man about this, you know, quasi hash competition put on in Europe, usually once a year, invite only kind of thing, low key and you know, usually it was, from what I've heard, it wasn't really judged on paper per se, like we would judge a high times cup. It was more just the first bowl of hash gone is the winner. Usually the first one smoked up is obviously the best one in the room. So that's the winner. I hear this year through the grapevine that Rosin pretty much swept the categories, which to me is is not hash in the sense of what me and you and I are talking about. Right. The true art of separating resin glands and it, you know, basically presenting the cannabis plant in its purest form. Once you add heat and pressure, you've changed things. There's no questions about it. You've changed the terpene profile. I mean, just, you've changed a lot about it. So for me, rosin ne- always needs to be in its it has its own place in this industry. It needs to be in its own category. You know, just like we have BHO, you know, we have dry sift, we have water hash, we have rosin. Don't just group them all together. You know, each has its own thing to bring to the table. Each is unique in its own way. And for me, it's, I'm more about, you know, the old school, keeping the tradition, kind of like Frenchie, you know, I don't really do the old world hash. That's just not the market I landed in. But that's just, that's my personal opinion. Okay, cool. You know, if you want to judge hash, that's dry sift and water hash. Okay. That is mechanically separated resin glands. Okay. So, I mean, I think basically from what you just said, you've answered the question. But if you had to rephrase, what is hashish? Hashish is... That is what, exactly what I said. It's pretty much, you know, I, I guess I could get out the, the hashish dictionary. No, 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 but I'm yeah, you mentioned say. that it was. It has to be mechanically separated. But yeah, to me, to me, it's just it's not. You've never added heat. You've never added pressure. You're basically getting the essence of the plant. And now some will argue that with water, you have you do lose some, some terpenes to the water. I do believe that if you 
you take a you take a plant and you dry sift it and you water hash it, you are going to have two different products in the end, and they are going to have two different terpene profiles. Right. It's just the way it is. So would you say that if you're dry sifting material, you get even more of the essence? To, for me personally, dry sift is is the pinnacle of hash to me. That is the purest form, I guess, of the plant. You haven't added anything into the picture to change it. All you've done is taken that plant, separated the green matter from the resin heads, and that's it. Okay, and so it's funny that you bring that up because my past interview was with Brandon Kirk and he and I were talking about hash and I've listened to the episode and, and I say there that that's kind of like what you said, basically that sifting is the most natural way to get the resin off the plant. But then I started thinking and thinking about like Frenchie and all this stuff. So I guess Charas in a way would, so is, would Charas still be considered hash? Even though- Oh, definitely. And I, I, I see where you're going with that. I guess I can get with that. For me though, it's just Charas. Charas is a pretty, is a pretty dirty form of hash. Right. You know, dry sift you can get to 99.999% just resin heads. Same with the water hash. The charas, you're gonna get, you get a lot of other contaminants in there. You get plant material in there. Unfortunately, you're gonna get dead skin, obviously, from their hands. It's definitely hash, for sure. I mean, there's many forms of hash. It's just, I guess maybe I left that one out. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it, you know, and, and it's just almost out of curiosity because, you know, I've been wondering to myself, like, I mean, I would consider Charas hash as well. Oh, for sure, because you know? for me, I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't say because it wasn't there thousands of years ago. Right. But I would imagine the very first hash that humans consumed was Charas. They touched a cannabis plant; it was sticky and collected on their fingers. Right. And yeah. You know, go from there. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, at that time, who knows, like, what the purpose of it was? You know, maybe yeah. it was like they wanted to eat it or or, exactly. or something. It may know? never, it may never have been their intention. Right. You know. Yeah. But I think humans figured it out. You know, yeah, we're you know over, we're pretty exploratory, so <laughs> especially when it comes to things that you know change our brain. Yeah. So kind of talking about you know dividing these essentially solventless categories, and you're saying rosin should be kind of by itself. It, need, it needs to be by itself because at the end of the day, not enough of the general public is educated enough on the differences that by what's left in their nail, they're going to make an educated decision. They all, every, we all, we all, I mean, I'll be the first to admit it, that when hash got to where it is, probably because of BHO, we would have never had hash so clean. We all started chasing that super clean dab. Like, oh my God, these guys leave nothing but oil. Like that's, you know, we've always tried to mimic. I feel like we've surpassed them now. But yeah, I just think that too many people, too many people only base, you know, base their judgment on how clean of a dab it is. And well, dry sift and water hash is always going to leave something behind. There's just no question to it. We, we have, we retain that wax membrane of the trichome. So that's always going to leave some form of residue. Yeah, because in, I mean, I guess with the hydrocarbons, it's, you know, they're, they're acting as a solvent and they're like almost dissolving essentially the oil they're breaking down the wax membrane and carrying the oil with the solvent right basically and then they go and they winterize it and they and they basically get all 
that out of it and essentially all they have is is the pure oil as to where both these kind of mechanical separation methods like you said we'll, we'll always have the head the actual you know skin of it or, or yeah, the membrane the, of it the skin of the fruit as, yeah. as French you, you know is, likes to call it it's, right. an, it's an easy analogy for people to understand okay. it's like the skin of the fruit and with you know water hash and dry sift we retain that skin with you know rosin and solvent extracts you get rid of that so what do you think about you know and, and it, I think it's like a fad like anything else but this obsession with the nail being clean I hope it's a fad. Honestly, I think a lot of a lot of worthy hash gets pressed into rosin. Not saying that that's a bad thing. It's just I'm. For me, it's all about the resin, and rosin is not resin. <laughs> it's rosin. You've changed the resin. So for me, it's just it's always going to be the pure. I want the pure. I want the melt. I want the dry sift. You know, I do. I love rosin. I love it. I make tons of it. I love it. It's just, it's, you've changed it. And rosin is a great, a great byproduct of low grade hash. Honestly, nobody is out there truly pressing six star hash, except for maybe Professor Sift. Like he, the guy's done it. He does it all the time. We know it. But most people out there saying that, uh, you know, it's, this rosin was pressed from six star hash. It's not from six star hash or they would not have pressed it. And a true six-star hash isn't just a six-star melt. It has a six-star taste, a six-star smell, and a six-star melt. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I, I don't know why you would want to squeeze that outside of just experimenting, you know? Yeah, I mean, to each their own. Right, yes. To each their own. But, you know, if we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty, it's, we're all, we all claim that we're here for the hash. Right. You know? <laughs> so... If rosin had its own category, then what would be in the other category? Would it would dry sift and ice water hash essentially be lumped in together? All three would each have their own category. Rosin okay. would have its own category. Dry sift should have its own category. Water hash should have its own category. Because even the cleanest dry sift next to a water hash, you know, I mean, almost looks and tastes dirty to you know the uneducated person. We leave... The dry sift retains a lot of those monoterpenes, which tend to be spicier and kind of burn, can burn your nose. Okay. A lot of people don't like that, and they perceive that as dirty or contaminated. Or the water hash, I think the water-soluble terpenes are a lot of those peppery terpenes and light ones that the dry sift retains. So I think, I think in the end, the average consumer is going to prefer water hash over dry sift. But to true heads, we all go for that sift, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't had a lot of sift. I've had your sift and Cuban sift were pretty much the only people that are that I've seen doing it kind of like even on a medium scale, you know, and I really enjoy it. I, I find it very different, you know. It's, it's, I don't know how to explain it, but I can definitely tell there's a difference when I'm vaping it or whatever however it is that i'm consuming between one thing and the other you know and when you when you really get down to it to the dry sift is it really it's a labor of love man you i've i've been saying it for years that just most people could never make dry sift like cuban dry sift or my dry sift or you know a couple other guys out there just because they don't have the right personality 
Like it takes a certain type of person to be able to do it because it's a, it's long hours. It's tedious. You got to have a crazy attention to detail, you know? Yeah. To be getting this separating contaminant from resin heads. Basically you're working in a microscopic world, you know? So yeah, I was going to crazy attention to detail. I was going to ask you like outside of attention to detail, what would you say like are a few other characteristics of a personality that it would take to to do something like for example this 99.9 percent refinement uh, a little bit ocd for sure uh you gotta be a little excessive compulsive i think how do i want to phrase it with the labor of love i mean it's kind of like it's just kind of a passion like why do people climb mount everest it's not easy people die doing it. I mean, I'm not comparing necessarily dry stuff to it, but it's like, it's just this labor of love that once you make that really, really, really clean stuff, you just chase it. It's like a, God, what am I, some word I'm looking for. It's like an addiction. Yeah. <laughs> Obsession. Yeah, it know? sounds like it's like, you definitely have like a place you want to get and getting to that place is not easy, no. but you're determined to do it. Yep. And so... You know, what led you to begin sifting in the first place? That's a good question. I was just kind of doing my thing in Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, I'll be, okay, I'll admit it. I was open blasting some VHO, you know, watching YouTube videos, had anything cannabis that I could. And uh, came across Bubble Man and the Great Gardener out at the Great Gardener spot making dry sift. And they were dabbing it. And I was just blown, like, what? You can you can dab Keith like like you do BHO? Like, how is that? And had a, a silk screen screen in my that I found in the garage and was just like, hell, I got some trim, you know, and like threw it over it. And it just got I happened to just kind of get lucky that the strain I was growing was great for dry sift and literally that don't even know what mesh screen it was, like 10 second bounce on it. And I got a dab that bubbled and melted. And I, that was it, I was sold. It taste, the taste was like nothing I had ever had. I thought that the open blasted BHO we were making in 2012 tasted good. Like the dry sift just blew it out of the water, you know? And that was it. Then I got, then I know it, you know, started watching the Bubble Man videos and oh, you know, use Use this size screen on the bottom, this size screen on the top, and I just started playing with it. Kind of fine-tuned it to fit my needs. And yeah, so it was a happy there. coincidence. Yeah, and I was just started. I was just making it for personal, you know, personal use. Right. It was just it was because it's what I wanted to smoke. Right. And at that time, how were you I guess smoking it? Were you I dabbing doing, it or I was we were I was dabbing I guess I was what I, I was making what I would call uh, two grades. You know, I had two different grades of dry sift, one that was meltier than the other. The meltiest one I would dab. It was probably like a three-star melt, honestly, nowadays, but it bubbled and melted and tasted great. The other stuff I would uh, roll in the joints. I'd sprinkle it in joints and roll it, and I just loved it, man. That was it. I, like, I was sold. Yeah. And, but that dry sift, making that clean dry sift, also got me looking back at the water hash Back then, we were literally just paint mixing it in 45 minutes on the first wash and just getting this horrible green stuff that, like, even barely even smoke. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's funny because Cam from Pua told me the same thing. Basically, that's how he started out. He's like, it was a summer day. Yeah, uh, I mean, 80 degrees out. You know, we're using so much freaking ice. 
like, what is the deal here in five gallon buckets? And you would get such small amounts that it was like, this is just, this isn't worth it. You know, like this is not worth my time and effort. And doing clean dry sift made me relook at, you know, made me recross that bridge of, let's see if we can make melty bubble hash. Yeah. Yeah. And it just all went from there. That's cool. Um, it's funny how that kind of worked out. And, you know, but obviously, like you said, it, it takes a certain kind of person to like want to pursue that and then refine it more and more and more. And so at what point was it that you were like, OK, you know, dry sifting isn't enough. I need to get it to like ninety nine point nine percent purity. I, I had the opportunity to move out to California in 2015 at the towards the end of 2015. About September 2015, I was making some, you know, halfway decent dry sift and uh, got had the opportunity to go to Emerald Cup and had made some, at that point, what I had considered probably my best dry sift and ran into Cuban grower Ozzy at Emerald Cup 2015 and proceeded to find out that I was in a pretty small group of people that could make dry sift at that quality and I had no idea. I just knew that I liked my dry sift. I thought it was pretty good. You know, it worked for me. Having no idea that I was considered at a level that I, I never in my wildest dreams thought that my hash was would be that good. Right. And yeah. getting a shout out on Hash Church after that, I mean that was it. It was And who did that who was that coming from? Cuban and from, his wife. Yeah. Definitely gave me my pretty much gave me my place in this industry. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I read somewhere something along the lines of like, I don't think you competed that first year, right? I, I didn't compete that year. Yeah, and but you got some of your sift to to them, and they, from what I read, they were more impressed with that sift than essentially anything else that had been put into competition uh, yeah, up, the, up until that point. The Emerald Cup that year, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of funny, you know. So it's like. Some of the the best sift around was just kind of this this underground sift that you didn't even think was like maybe that great or yeah, and that's why that's why like not to change the subject or anything, but that's why like I'm that's why I'm into things like Legends of Hash and the Eagle Clash because it leaves the opportunity open for the little guy who nobody knows who's just crushing out personal stuff but doing it better than all of us. You know, gives him an opportunity to kind of shine. You know, and like hey. You guys aren't the only ones doing this, you know? Right. Just some of us just don't care for the world to know. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I, there's probably a lot of people that are making really good hash, which obviously is coming from really good starting material that aren't competing, you know, and we may not know anything about them. But like you said, it's I think those competitions definitely give room for for people who maybe don't have necessarily like a name or any kind of recognition. Yeah, because like your your high times and your Emerald Cups, like that, those, to enter those almost takes like, it almost takes like a team. Like it's a, a, it's a high dollar investment and then a lot of product. That's what I've heard, and yeah. So it's like, it's kind of not easy for the little guy to do. And speaking about the Emerald Cup, I know, I don't, I think it was 2017 when they, went from having the dry sift and the water hash in separate categories yeah. and, and kind of lumped them into one. Yeah, 2016, they still had uh, water hash and rosin were grouped together and dry sift was still its own category. And then 2017, they kind of just grouped everything together. 
yeah. the same with 2018. And your thoughts on that? Uh, it was horrible. Honestly, I went back and forth with them by email for a while. We talked about it, that, like how, you know, why, why are you grouping them all together? It's not really a fair competition that way, you know, to have all three judged together. They agreed in the end, but it just, it was too late for them basically to change their whole right format and really for me i just i just wanted redemption yeah because <laughs> if you know i'll tell the story that in 2016 i won first and second place for dry sift and was dq'd about 10 days later they claim that we failed testing for pyrethrum we did use it in the garden that year we lost over a third to russet mites that year learned a lot that year i only say that they claim because still I have not seen that testing paperwork. Nobody's been able to come up with it and show it to me, nor SC Labs or Tim Blake. So I'm not saying that we didn't fail. I'm just saying I haven't seen it. Okay. You know? So yeah, I think politics may have played a little bit, but is what it is. Yeah, uh, it's funny because I so I. I don't know. I might have met you the year before that or, you know, in, in passing. But I remember buying that Barry White from you at the Emerald Cup that year. I think that sounded the only sift that I got from you. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. And of course, at the time, like I didn't know that it was going to be like the cup winner or whatever. So I was stoked for you when when you won. And then I saw kind of that all that stuff unfold through social media. And yeah, it's. Who knows what happened? But I, I'm, I guess, curious if you guys independently tested that material. We that one we didn't because every every gram that was made went to the entry. I see with both entries. Okay. Um, we did test every gram of flour and every gram of hash that came off the farm that year, and we had not one failed test. And was any of that, I guess, plant material, the same plant material that was used to make? That sift? Oh yeah. Okay. So, but you can the flower could test could test clean, and when hatch, it's concentrated. Yeah, but then when it's concentrated down, and we really we just we just looked at it as a great educational point because the majority of farmers in the Emerald Triangle were still using pyrethrum products. I mean, it's an oil that comes from chrysanthemum flowers. It's on all of your produce. It's just that in the last few years we've found out that when it's combusted, it's not it's not very good and for the human body and it's not broken down very well. So we just use it as an educational point that like, look, I mean, we, I even had people argue with me that there was, there was no way that you could have gotten DQ'd for that. It had to be Eagle 20 or something like that. And I was like, no dude, the product that you're still using, we failed for. There was a lot of big farms that were still using pyrethrin at that point. We were in the Emerald Grown Co-op, a large percentage of the farms in that co-op are still using pyrethrum. So we were able to use that as an educational point to show people that like, hey, this this isn't, you shouldn't use this product, you know? And that there is a, at the time, I didn't even know that there was an approved list of pesticides for cannabis in California. I just didn't know, you know, nobody had ever told me. So yeah, it was a, it was a, a big learning, of, you know, it was a huge learning learning deal for me well and you know obviously through social media but it seemed like you weren't like upset about necessarily the situation it was more about well why was this even in competition to begin with at that point exactly that's that was my big thing was like 
Look now, I know, I know. Like Cuban will tell you, and Brandon, and some people will tell you, you know, you can't, you just don't compete without doing pre-testing. Well, when you're a, a full sun, full term grower, and you're entering something in the Emerald Cup, the time between harvest, drying and curing, and making the product, and getting that entry in, there is no time to pre-test. It is on a hope and a prayer that we did everything right this year, you know. And we'll leave the test up to Emerald Cup, and Emerald Cup will do its due diligence and have everything tested before they run a competition. And, well, they didn't. <laughs> and then they just decided to give out awards before they even had all the testing back. So that, to me, that was the big, that was the big burn, is that, like, we didn't even have to go through that, but Emerald Cup kind of put us through that. I still love Emerald Cup, and they gave me the platform to shine, but... Yeah, it's a great event. We were played a little dirty, I felt that year. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, it Nobody's seemed like a, like, a, like a weird situation. Just, a, you know, not, it didn't turn out, I don't think, how it was intended, but... Yeah, I don't think Tim Blake intended for that, you know, that to happen either. I mean, come on, it makes, it makes him look bad at the end of the day, too. Yeah. But we'll, we'll kind of leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. So... And I've heard you say this before on one of your lives, and you refer to SIFT as the labor of love. And on that specific live, you were even saying that, you know, at this point, for the amount of work you're having to put in to make SIFT of that quality, it's just financially not worth it because you'd have to charge too much. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's why that's why dry SIFT is like $180 a gram in the club. It's, you know, we have to, we have to charge a lot for it. It takes a lot of material, it takes a lot of hours, you know, and it's just in the rec market, it's just not very viable unless it's all done on machine, you know? Right. If you got to have a guy in a room for eight hours to make, you know, 28 grams of dry sift, clean dry sift, and then you can only, you know, sell that at $30 a gram to a club, you're losing money. Right, it's just not going to cut it. <laughs> so it's just not going to cut it. Yeah. So I guess it is a labor of love until maybe someday we'll be able to automate it. I don't see that true 99.99 dry sift ever being able to be automated. I think it takes a human, human touch. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, do you think it'll ever get to that point? And, you know, I think the technology could definitely be developed, but I just don't know that it'd be worth it. To develop it for someone. Yeah, and there's not there's not a very big market. Even when dry sift was pretty big, you know, like when when you know Cuban was putting out a lot and making drops, it just unless you were him, there was just not a huge market for it. You know, it's kind of a, a smaller niche niche crowd. Why do you think that is? Probably lack of education. I mean there's a you know, it's a big problem in this industry between consumer and producer. Yeah. There's a big educational gap, I feel. I think part of the reason that I kind of, you know, wanted to do this project interviewing hash makers is in part, obviously for people that already, you know, know about hash and like want to hear about maybe some tech or, or whatever, but also just to kind of educate people that maybe just don't know much about solventless. Exactly. Um, That's when I got, when I got into the Cal, you know, the California market in 2015, I always said that the, the biggest thing is going to be education, education, education. If I want a place in this industry, I need to educate my consumer. And that's, that's I think, with everybody. If you want to, you know, especially now, if you want to, you know, etch out a corner of this market, educate your consumer. 
Why, why should they choose your product over the next guy? You know, why should they choose, you know, an organic sun grown product? Educate, educate, educate. And do you think, or do you feel like social media is like, I guess a platform to, to somewhat do that? It is. It's just, it's kind of not used very ethically. I think uh, everybody, it's just a lot of misinformation to me, you know? Uh, you anybody can put out now anybody has a platform to basically put their opinion out to the world you know and opinions aren't always facts and opinions aren't always you know everybody is welcome to have one but yeah yeah that doesn't mean that it's fact or that it's true so social media i think can go can definitely go in both ways it is what helped me get educated on the matter you know but you have to disseminate that information and what's what's good and what's bad out of that info. Yeah, no what's, pun intended, but you have to sift through it. You, you know? have to sift through it, exactly. You got to hash it out, man. <laughs> so, you know, I've talked to a couple hash makers and, and they've given me their take on what makes a good hash plant. So, and I, I definitely want to talk with you about hash here in, in a little bit, but since we're talking about sift, is there anything that you would say stands out about genetics when looking for for material to sift specifically? Genetics wise, you know, I honestly can probably say I haven't been able to sift enough of the genetic library to really say. Now, when I go out and I scope stuff, I'm, I'm looking for a certain stock to resin gland size ratio. I'm looking for a drier resin, not a greasy resin, something that's hopefully not going to melt it in a 40 degree room, <laughs> right. you know, like the wedding cake hash I just made or cookies doesn't tend to sift very well because it's a very greasy kind of thing. Yeah. Cause 40 is still, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty cold, cold room. Yeah. And so if it's, if it's greasing up at 40, you um, have to remember that we're also, you know, manipulating that, moving that resin around and dragging it over a screen. So we're creating friction. So yeah. we are creating a little bit more heat. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, that's my that's the best that I think I can say on the matter because I haven't I can't say I've been able to go through hundreds of cultivars that I've been able to look at them in the field and scope them and then sift them. You know, it's mostly been like, a, well, that bag leaves a lot of keep on the <laughs> bottom. Let's try that one kind of thing. You know, where over the last two years I've really been able to scope things, see them in the field, and water hash them. Okay. And now that in that sense, I feel like I've really, I've really got it pretty dialed down that if I see a plant in the field and I can scope it, I can, it's pretty much probably going to work in the washroom. Dry sift, I can't, I don't think I can say that. And so when you, you're saying you're going out in the field and like scoping the resin, obviously you're doing this almost like at a microscopic level where you're, yeah. you're looking at the heads. Like, like a, a 30X or a 60X magnifying glass like a jeweler's loop okay yeah and we you know we get in there and we look at you know the microscopic world we're looking at the resin gland we're looking at the size of the capitated stalk the size of the glands are they evenly sized are they mismatched and you know what, what ratio of clear to cloudy to amber all those factor into the end of the the end quality of hash that you're making and the color yeah and well and so color, you know, color. again, it's one of these things where it's like the melt. I feel like the big trend right now is clarity. It's clarity. Yes. So you get, you get an, an awesome visual experience, but there isn't much behind it. 
I'll, I will be the first to say that I prefer, I would love if we could all somehow get color out of the equation and, and see color as a beautiful thing. Like different, the different colors of cannabis, dude. If you, when you start growing things to full term and then you hash them out and you put them in a jar and you start seeing the color difference, I mean, it's great. Some stuff is dark. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Honestly, that one's probably going to have a more full body high than the light one that was harvested early. It's going to be very one dimensional, maybe just a quick 10 minute head high and you're kind of done. And do you, I mean, with the darkness, is it, oxidation always or is it a lot of it's just terpene content or uh, you know a, th- a lot of it you know it can definitely be oxidation it can be oxidation but there is there's just resin out there that's just dark and it's i don't scientifically know exactly why because you'll scope it and it'll look really light but once you put that all into a mass it just comes out really dark a lot of times Majority of the time, it's due either to oxidation or timing of harvest, though, you know, it can just be strain specific. Okay. Like, for instance, my, my 24K, number two pheno that, you know, we grow and hash a lot. No matter if you take it early or you take it late, it pretty much has the same color. It just is an orange colored resin where, like, say, cookies and cream, even if you take that late, it's white. Like, that's... You take it early, you take it late. It's really light colored resin. And that's just cultivars. Yeah, I've, the only time I've ever had cookies and cream, it was the like exotic genetics Cuban collaboration. And I mean, to be completely honest, it's it wasn't my favorite like genetics, but it just didn't like resonate with me. But I do remember it just being like super, super white, oh, you yeah. know. It's, and it's it's a very nice light colored, great you know, great hash plant. It's got it. You know, it's got the appeal to the consumer. And how do you feel about people, you know, how you're talking about the 10 minute head rush on the early pulled plants? How do you feel about people pulling plants early for look more than for anything else? I mean, if you're just doing it for look, then, you know, you're missing a lot of other categories, a lot of other boxes to check. And that's, I mean, we, I'm not going to lie. We, we pull things a little early, but we were only in like that seven day early range. We don't really go like two weeks early. To me, it's just, that's too early. To each their own though. You know, honestly, I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. Well, and we kind of, we kind of need to start all kind of getting on the same playing field, I guess you could say, and make some rules to this, you know, like we need to, Make it so that the consumer knows what they're dealing with. Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of it has to do in part with terminology. Like, there's so much terminology out there that it's confusing even for people that know about it, you know? And so, you know, one of the things that I've been just thinking a lot about lately that I I find kind of funny in a way is, you know, full spectrum. It's like, so many people use it in so many different ways. Yeah, and they use the term full spectrum very, pretty loosely. If, so let's use water hash, for instance. People call full spectrum basically your 40U, your 70U, your 90U, your 120U. Sometimes there will be 150 in there and 180, and they call that full spec. Well, that's not full spectrum. There's resin glands up into 200 microns. There's resin glands down below 25 microns. True 
I think the real only full spectrum hash is honestly hydrocarbon or maybe flower rosin because they're literally just taking the whole plant and extracting the whole thing. Us hash makers, water hash makers, we use that term pretty loosely. And that's that's another one that I would I would love us all to get on the same page and like, look, if we're gonna call it full spec, it's this. You know, if it's mixed micron, then say it on the label. You know, you got the consumers kinda getting, you know, the you know, blanket pulled over their eyes a little bit because some people some people are producing full spec, some people aren't. It's not on the label, so you don't really know what you're getting in the end, you know. Well, and then rosin also complicates that and even more. More, it's I'm more speaking in the world of rosin actually okay. than anything with the full spec. You know, most hat, you know, water hash. If you see full spec, you're gonna you know that it's that 45 micron, probably through 120 or you know up to the 150 bag, not including it. Maybe if it was clean. But with the rosin, it's definitely, it's a mixed match. And then you got different, you know, you got different ratios. You got people who will, you know, press the first wash 120 and 90, and then they'll press second wash 120 and 90 with the 40s and, you know, the lower microns and stuff, and they'll call that full spec. Well, that's not really full spec because it's not proportioned exactly how it comes off of the plant, you know? Well, yeah, and then also for the consumer, I mean, unless you have some, like, really amazing advanced palette it's probably hard to say you know yeah honestly it if it's you know done with a good hash cultivar you're not you're not really gonna know and when i say a good hash cultivar i mean that the 40 micron is still good you know a bad hash plant the 40 micron we can't really use it's just food grade essentially it's like food grade and the 25 is you know almost always food grade in my opinion you know good hash plant you're gonna have you know, you're going to have good hash in every micron. And so, you know, speaking on microns, it's cool to be able to separate all the different resin based on, would you call it maturity? Yeah, I mean, I think the, again, at the science, I don't know enough. Frenchie will probably say one thing and I can say another. But yeah, everybody is going to have science it. of it. But yeah, I mean, for me, the trichome size, a lot of that is maturity. Because once you play with the same cultivar in your harvest times, you'll notice that you're going to get more 40U or you're going to get more 120U, and that's that's maturity of the resin gland. Do genetics play a role in that as well? Genetics do too, definitely. Genetics play probably the biggest role, I would say. Because I, you know, I don't know why randomly I remember Bubble Man mentioning on Hash Church once about some guys he knew in Australia that were growing some stuff and apparently the melt or the you know hash itself was really good but it's all 45 like that's yeah. where the concentration of all their resin glands were yeah and that's you know that's probably because in Australia they're more equatorial so they're going to have you know smaller resin heads yeah more sati- or more whatever leaning, you yeah. know thin leaf variety yeah, or thin leaf variety or yeah 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 and that's 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 you know, certain cultivars like uh, the ChemDog we just did it. Most of the resin is in the 120 micron. You know, you'll you'll wash other stuff that most of that is in the 70 micron. Now, is that timing a harvest? Can be, but when you really start playing with cultivars, you start noticing that you know they have different size resin plants. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I personally really love sativas. I've 
growing to enjoy Indicas, you know, at certain points or like we were saying earlier, I guess it would be technically a broadleaf variety. But you don't see a lot of hash makers like making a lot of sativa. They generally don't hash very well. Yeah, that's, that's what I imagine. Why? Sativas, you'll get more, you know, generally people talk about three different type of resin glands. You know, the capitated stalk. God, I can't, even, I can't name them all off the top of my head here this morning. But there is a fourth. And, and when you look at it under a microscope, it just looks like a hair. Well, that secretes oil all the time. And sativas generally have more of those resin glands. And uh, they don't hash. I mean, there's nothing there for us to grab. You know, it might you might be able to grab that when you do a hydrocarbon extraction, but for mechanical separation, there's just nothing there to grab. Yeah, and you know, that leads me to my next question, which is, I, from talking to various hash makers, everybody keeps mentioning, you know, phenos, and so that's kind of an interesting situation where I don't even know if a particular pheno would work if they don't have the type of glands or heads that you need exactly exactly it's a lot <laughs> like you want to be a good hash maker it's a long long road of taking l's everybody needs to hear that long road of taking l's until you you dial in your process enough that you can you know look at plants or look at material scope it however whatever your process is and have a general idea that okay this will probably work or this probably won't work I can't tell you how many times I put material into the system and just pull nothing out or just have a horrible afternoon. You know, I mean, I just two days ago ran something that was sub 1% in three washes. I mean, that's that's a rough afternoon, but that still happens. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the material that you have to essentially waste. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, basically at the end of the day, it's a wasted pound of wasted pound of product yeah know? that's not uh, farmer, it doesn't sound fun the farmer took a loss on I took a loss on that's you know that's the way it goes but that's why we do that's why we try to do test washes we don't just take you know a whole field from somebody and yeah we'll we'll hash this well that's you know financially that doesn't work right and in those cases how do you do test washes? Do you just do like a, a small, for example? Yeah, know? we'll just do it. We'll just do a small amount. A lot of people do like a mason jar, and they'll do a really, really tiny amount of mason jar, shake it for five minutes or whatever, and see what settles. I prefer. That's okay. That will give you basically uh, an idea of yield, but that's only one aspect of what we're looking for. We're looking for something also that has a good terpene profile. It might yield well and it might have zero taste. Well, we don't really want to work with that. So I like to do about a one pound or 2,000 gram wash and gives you a good idea of exactly what you're going to get in the end. So in the case that you were telling me about where you had a wash a few days ago that didn't go well, had your test run done decent enough to where you thought it would Put no, that, it was that was the test. I see. I see. Yeah, it okay. was just a test wash. Okay. Yeah, but still wasted lots of wasted yeah, material. I mean, it's you know. you know still a couple hours of my time. You know, still material that the farmer had to give up. Yeah. Just you know, you're ready to take an L. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, it's it's you know finding those phenos that that do it well. I'm sure 
takes a lot of money, time, yeah, effort. You, you, know, you know, just like my 24K wash is great. Just because you wash 24K doesn't mean it's going to wash great. I hunted that, you know. We did a, started a bunch of seeds. We selected some plants. We grew them out. And, and we had to wash all the plants in the end to see what produced what, what kind of terpene profile each one had, what kind of percent yield each one had. Now, you start doing that over, say, a 10,000-square-foot farm, that's a lot of work. You know, we had uh, 84 cultivars that year. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a lot. That's just 84 cultivars, not 84 plants. You know, so we could have 10 of each cultivar that we had to go through. Right, yeah, you're talking a thousand plants, you know, easy. It's a lot of work. Yeah, that it sounds like a lot of work. And when, when you're doing work at that scale, is it just you? It's always pretty much been just me. We've had some help, you know, I've partnered up and done some work with Wolf Sauce Winery. He's a good friend. But for the most part, yeah, it's a one-man operation. Except for packaging, my fiance helps that. Well, that's good. I mean, yeah, some help for sure in the process. I mean, yeah, somewhere along the line. Yeah. And since you're doing so much by yourself, I'm curious what your typical approach to washing is. Are you using machines? I, I am not a fan of machines. I just do a big 32-gallon, 220-micron work bag in a 32-gallon bucket. We can run multiple buckets at a time up to by myself. You know, I'll do like 4,000 wet grams in a bucket and do two buckets. When I have help, we'll wash 36,000 wet grams in a day, which is a lot. Yeah. That's that's banging it out. Personally, I just paddle the first round and then we pull out the old school drill and paint mixer and we just go slow. I don't like machines because of having to clean them. Honestly, I have bad shoulders, so working, you know, if you... Most of them don't have pumps these days. If it does have a pump, you're going to take the pump out and change the plumbing right away anyhow, so it's gravity-fed, so it's got to be up higher. So working above my head doesn't work so well. I don't like the work bags, the zip-up work bags. I feel like it's just, you're confining the material, which, I mean, if you think about this, we are sieving resin heads. That material is also acting like a sieve, especially if it's confined into a small space. I've done not necessarily side by side, but we've washed the same cultivars one day using work bags in a bucket, and we've done it the other day bare naked like I do, and yields are totally different. Uh, Usually it goes up doing it my style. And we tend to wash just as much or more as a guy in six machines does in a day. So for me, it's just my style. And when you say that it, usually produces more when you're doing it your way. Why do you think that is? Just because you have a, a more open workspace. Now, when you make hash for a while, you'll start to notice that like even the water has a saturation point. It can only hold so much hash. So it's the same thing. You can find that material to a smaller and smaller space. You just, you know, you're, you're losing hash in the end or it's getting caught up in the material, which then, you know, you might... I might get the same return in three washes as you get in four washes using that system. And that's just hash getting caught up and then being released in later washes. So it's not only important to have a surface area, but at the same time, it almost sounds like if you have too much material, it's almost counteractive. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there definitely is a balance point between too much material 
and you know the right amount. We all we can't really give you the exact numbers, but good hash makers will just look and be like too much material or too much ice or look at the color of the water. It's time to pull it, you know, or the saturation point. Yeah, those are I mean all things that come with experience. I assume. yeah, it's, it's experience. Yeah, I mean, it becomes intuitive. When I was first getting into making water hash, how many how many times that I thought that water was just gonna had so much resin in it, and it turns out in the end it had more dirt in it than it had resin in it. You know, <laughs> the stuff you see floating in the water isn't necessarily resin heads. So this is a, a kind of a random question, but it just came to mind. I and I heard this a long time ago somewhere, and I know you've been doing some a lot of outdoor growing the past few years, which we'll get into a little bit later. But have you ever heard of anybody like washing the literally like rinsing the buds oh yeah definitely the the after dunk, they're cut the, the dunk know? is real okay especially in the emerald triangle you've heard it here <laughs> and i'm not scared to admit it we've done it and if you're growing outside full turn full sun there's just no ifs ands or buts about it you're getting dust and dirt on your plants i always tell people that the best thing you can do for your outside outdoor crop is to keep your your dust to a minimum. Meaning if you have plots right next to a road, stone the road or put hay out or something to keep that dust off because that's all gonna end up on your plants. And when you wash it, that ends up in your hash. So doing doing the dunk, quote unquote, <laughs> is, uh, is a very real thing. A lot of people, okay, so the, the dunk, let's see, the dunk usually is a peroxide mix and people do it to get rid of powdery mildew. I don't think it works so great for that. It'll kill the powdery mildew. It doesn't necessarily wash it off the plant. So it could still visually have powder, a white powdery looking substance on the flowers when it's dried. Okay. Um, for the sake of hash, it's great. You can use just water, not too cold, because if it's too cold, you will end up losing of some resin because you're basically hashing it now. It definitely cleans a lot of du- a lot of dust off, but you got to kind of be careful on how you run your dryer rooms, and you know you don't want to be taking obviously dripping wet buds and hanging them in in the dryer room. They're probably not going to dry very well. You want to let them air dry before you bring them into the room. But yeah, it's a very real thing, and don't be scared to try it. <laughs> Honestly, like people are, you know, people will scream bloody murder when they see people doing the dip, but it's I mean it's legit. Yeah, I've been doing it up here for years and it works too. If you have a very mild amount of PM, I suggest doing it. It's you know you're gonna you're gonna kill the spores. You might not wash them all off, but you're gonna kill the spores, which will keep it from spreading. You know, and honestly, you got to do what you got to do these days. Those pounds aren't worth four thousand dollars. When they're worth five, you need them all to be dried and sold. <laughs> That's just the honest truth, people. Yeah, it seems like. You know, the heyday of of the big priced pounds are kind of gone. Yeah, you know? hope maybe, maybe they'll come back. Yeah, maybe. But the other thing of speaking to the dip is that we are now, now in a market where if you get powdery mildew, just make sure you send the stuff with powdery mildew to the right place. That can go to a hydrocarbon extraction. They can filter that out. That can go to distill it. You know, it's not a junk product and don't try to sell it you know, as flour, you know, basically give people dirty product. You don't have to do that anymore. You can grow a whole field of powdery mildew 
and it's biomass. I'm not saying go do it, like that's what you should be doing, but it, if it the happens. unfortunate truth is that in Northern California and Southern Oregon, we are in the Pacific Northwest and there is powdery mildew growing everywhere. So you're going to get it to an, some extent, whether it's one little spot on one little leaf on an acre grow or it's half the goddamn acre is covered. You know, you're going to get it to some extent. Yeah. And I mean, again, I think probably genetics play a factor yeah, in that as well factor you know you'll, you'll get just go out in the woods even and like you can find blackberry patches that are covered in pm and you'll have a couple of the plants growing within there that are absolutely pristine they are just immune so yeah definitely you know growing if you're an outdoor grower, grower don't just grow any cultivar grow something that works in your area yeah i mean i'm sure there's a lot of people who do maybe stuff like this but i've seen uh I think Jesse's his name for bio, bio vortex and you know, he, he does some breeding and I've read before that he'll like put it real near the coast and see how it goes and, you know, find a keeper essentially that that'll battle all that type of stuff. Yeah. Jesse, in those environments. Jesse knows what he's doing and he's done a, you know, he's done a lot of coastal growing and uh, I've grown a lot of his stuff and it's, it's one of the, you know, he's one of the breeders that generally, you know that you're going to grow his stuff and it's going to be pretty immune to a lot of the stuff you want it to be. Yeah. And then, like you said, it's regional though, you know, he's in the area. Exactly. Don't, you know, you don't, you can't necessarily take that down and uh, grow it on the coast down in San Diego and it's going to do the same thing. Right. To be honest, it was bred on the coast in Arcata, which is really wet, you know? And, uh, yeah, that's why I say grow what's, what works, you know, what, try and find what works in your area, which is, kind of gets me to these some of these boutique strains you know you don't you don't really see them done well outdoors or done a lot outdoors and it's because they're finicky as hell just better suited to indoor environment super finicky like you wouldn't you wouldn't grow this plant period but it's got such a killer market you know so you go for it you got to do that you know you want to do that indoor a lot of these are really finicky until you know you get five years down the road that somebody bred you know worked that line a little bit outdoors you know got it immune to some stuff right a lot of these boutique stuffs are just going to be covered in buds covered in bugs covered in mold and covered in pm yeah i mean they're essentially indoor indoor strains essentially an indoor strain and that's yeah that's a funny thing yeah that's why you know you saw you saw blue dream crush it for so long and like green crack crush it's because they they did they did huge numbers for people and they were clean you know, pretty mold-free. Right. Speaking of genetics and breeders, you've mentioned the 24K a few times. I know that's from DNA. Yeah, that's a, that's a DNA genetics. They seem to be one of those companies that, you know, maybe it's not necessarily every pheno, but it seems like a lot of their stuff is being used by people who are making hash. Yeah, you, you see a lot of... A lot of- there's a few breeding companies that a lot of the stuff that you hash, if you follow the lineage, is in there. And that I don't know if that was intentional on their part or if it was luck on their part, but a lot of that is, the, is their starting genetics, the males that they use, you know, they just, or they just manifest resin for whatever reason, <laughs> you know, but you got, you know, people like, you know, third gen and dying breed, you know, they got... You know, they've got a killer male that they can throw at just about everything and just about everything you throw at it turns into a hash winner. 
you know, it's because they're just huge resin producers. DNA, a lot of people will talk down on them a little bit. If you do large seed select, you know, seed grows of theirs, you're going to see pretty wild variations. However, what I noticed is that in the, they might have wild visual variations, but in the end, the flower is generally, you know, pretty stable terpene wise. Like you grow a bunch of tangy seeds out, you're going to get 99% of them are going to smell like tangy, you know? Is it, did it fill in well? Does it have good bag appeal? And there's a lot of other aspects that go into it. But as far as terpenes go, I think that they're, you know, generally you're going to get what they say you're going to get. Okay. You know, so I grew out the 24K, you know, we grew out like six females that we grew out, all very similar structure, very similar looking bud in the end. And it's just that one. It just it stood out even before flower. You could smell smell the citrus and tangy on it. And the whole season we were like, this is gonna be the winner. This is gonna be the winner. Thank God that she hashed so well. <laughs> I've been able to keep her around. Right. But yeah, I mean I didn't I didn't do any work on it. All I did was hunt it. I just, you know, cracked a bunch of seeds, grew them out, hashed it all to see what was there. Definitely, yeah, took the best. You know, you got DNA, they just seem to manifest resin. Uh, there's quite a few other out there, you know, you know, uh, Jay Breezy, Seed Junkie, I'm having problems thinking of names right now. Oh, it's all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I, you, you mentioned Dying Breed, and I think they took, like, third at Legends of Ash this year, if I'm not mistaken, so... Yeah, I, didn't, I haven't actually seen the, the, uh, the final list. I haven't either. The only thing that I've been able to kind of figure out through the Instagram is, uh, you know, the rosin from Terps Army. Terps I think Army. it's a wedding cake. Yeah, wedding cake, which, which, big applause to Terps Army. They crushed it out in Spain this year. They took most of the awards. They took Legends of Hash. Nothing but respect for those guys. Yeah, I think and they took massive rosins too. Congratulations for winning. Uh, it's the whole me talking about Legends of Hash being won by rosin that's just my personal opinion i just want the world to know that that's my personal opinion and that you know i don't don't look down on anybody who won any of those competitions yeah like you said to each to each his own you know those guys are obviously doing things right if they're you know sweeping up span this week like that yeah for sure yeah i've seen them kind of on the scene as of late and they've just kind of blown up but i'm sure they've put you know, some years of work into the yeah, craft. Yeah, yeah, I guarantee it. I guarantee that there wasn't an overnight success. Yeah. You know, and then, yeah, you got, you know, Dying Breed and Brandon. Guy, nobody competes in hash like Brandon does. That's, he, he's the king, man. He's the big dog. Like, when it comes to competing in hash, it's just nobody goes as hard as he does. And that those are just stone cold facts, man. Yeah. So when you first moved out to California, who were some of the people that you kind of looked up to within the hash you know, world? The industry? Yeah. Uh, well, most of them were regulars, usually on uh, hash church, you know, and uh, me being a dry sifter, obviously it was like Ozzy, you know, Cuban was fucking like this dude with like shiny neon lights behind him you know it was like it's like it was like meeting your your idol you know it's it's weird probably for people in california but like a kid from wisconsin growing weed and like all i ever wanted to do was 
all I wanted to do was like grow big plants in Northern California and like be on hash church. Like I thought that was like super cool and like baller shit, you know? <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it was like Bubble Man because he had, you know, a lot of, gotta say the guy did a lot of educational stuff on YouTube. And uh, that's where I think I first learned about hash was probably through like Bubble Man's world and stuff I came across. Uh, you know, started watching Hash Church, so you had your Cuban growers, you had Jibs from Tricom Heavy, Frenchie was on there, you know, Dank Duchess was on there once in a while, you know, a lot of those guys. And uh, I can now say most of them I have programmed in my phone these days. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Like, it's like, yeah, all the people that you know. goosebumps, dude. Like, seriously. It's, I'm living, I'm living out a dream. It's the fucking coolest thing ever. Like, I didn't, you know, like I said, I thought I thought my hash personally was good. I like to smoke it. I never thought I would fall into the category of top tier hash makers in the industry period. Like, never in a fucking thousand years did I think that that's like the quality that I was at or quality of grower. I was had no fucking idea, no idea. So, so chase your dreams, man. Like, do it. And it's never too late. You know, I gave up a successful construction company when I was 37 years old to move out to California to grow weed and hash. Like, could sound goofy to some people. I thought my father was going to disown me for it, but it was the best thing I ever did. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I, I've seen you post stuff about, you know, doing that essentially moving here and like you said living out the dream and you know it seems like you did it kind of like a later age because I'm actually I'm 37 now so it basically was when you moved out here and like you said you you left a successful business behind to like chase this dream and so can you tell me like where that drive started that's a good question, man. That's just something that I, that's, that goes back to when you were asking me about the type of person that makes dry sift. They've got this internal flame that like can't be explained. And uh, it's like I, I said to my fiance the other day, it's, for me, this is, it's just a lifestyle. It just is what I am. <laughs> we go through some serious bullshit in this industry a lot. You know, like I just had the compliance board at my house the other day. I mean, we go through, it's ridiculous, the roller coaster ride, but the freedom that it has given me to just live the life I want to live, it's, I have 100% the cannabis plant and the hash that I make. I've done that. So, you know, I'm willing to, willing to go through a lot. Uh, that original drive, like I started growing in Colorado way back in the day and their original medical program, the drive was just to smoke good weed. Like, that was the drive, man. That's how much of a head I was. <laughs> I just wanted to smoke good weed, you know? And living in Wisconsin, you didn't get to do that unless you grew it. So, like, yeah, I mean, that... Yeah, it's a, it was like stuff you saw in high times, but yeah. you couldn't get Dude, my drive, to my it. drive probably, I probably, back then, was probably like a, a high time centerfold or something like that. <laughs> right. Like, dude, I want my bud to be a high time centerfold so I can, like, take it back and bring it to my friends. Yeah. That's, you know, weird, but... No, that's cool, man. I mean, I think a lot of us, you know, I remember having a friend who just at one point was like not even wanting to buy high times anymore because he's like, I just, I'll, we never see 
buds like that around here you know it's like this fantasy that you can't ever yeah. you ever get but you know in, in your case you sacrificed a lot to come out and, and, and essentially really do that you know really essentially be able to have buds that you can put in a High Times magazine at this point yeah um, dude I'm still pinching I mean I'm still fucking pinching myself still like the people look at me the way I looked at those people it just is true you know yeah, All those people. It was, I was just such a stoner that it was like <laughs> your your movie stars were you know your Cuban growers and your French cannolis and your bubble mans like so what was fucking ultra they were ultra stoning out more than you. What was the first time that you smoked weed or tried weed? I was probably I'm gonna say I think I was like 13 or 14 years old. Yeah, so ten dollar dime bag. Uh huh. Most of the seeds and stems. I mean, we smoked nothing but the Mexi downtown brown until about 1995. We started seeing good weed in Wisconsin. 95. Yeah, and I was about 15, 16 years old. That's when we started seeing, you know, chronic or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Hydro. Everybody just called it hydro. Yeah, just hydro. But we all know it was like NL5 by Hayes now. And fuck if somebody needs to bring that shit back. Now, you know, I love hazes, so I'm, I'm with like, you. Like, that, that skunk was like bred out of the skunk, and like, there was, that shit still was like gassier than most of the shit we smoke these days. Yeah. And I, it was $10 a gram back in 1995 in Wisconsin. It was 10 bucks a gram. <laughs> Pretty much the same price it is now, you know? Yeah, the, the prices kept steady. It's, uh, it's funny how that kind of worked, like... I could say the same thing, yeah, and you know, and it's any still ten bucks a gram for everybody that's you know selling their outdoor for five hundred dollars to some kid in fucking Wisconsin. Just so you know, it's still fifty bucks an eighth there. <laughs> <laughs> so, at what point did you grab a seat and say, "All right, let me give this a go"? You know, it was. I had uh, definitely got a push. I had a an old friend from high school who I hadn't seen in a while just randomly showed up on my door one day was in town because I think his grandfather was in the hospital or something like that and he was looking for a bag of weed so he called me up and of course I was like yeah I got you know I got some chronic not telling him that I was growing right and the second he saw that bag of weed he knew I was growing you know the guy was living in California and was from Wisconsin so like he knows like you were saying we don't see buds like that at night times while I was growing them in my basement in Wisconsin and right away he was just like dude you're you're fucking growing like we need you. Sh- you need to come out to California, bro. Like you need to get into this hustle. It's, it's the shit. Like I'm making tons of fucking money. We're sending, you know, boxes back to Wisconsin. Like, I think pounds were still pretty close to three back then. You know, so it was like, and they were starting a legitimate delivery service under Proposition Two Fifteen in Sacramento. So I was like, all right, I, I guess if I'm if I'm ever gonna do this, this is kind of my shot. Like. I have somewhere to land, I have, you know, what I thought was a job to kind of land in, you know, <laughs> none of that was true, but that's, that was the motivation, was this delivery service that me and a friend from high school and one of his friends from California were going to start in Sacramento. And the delivery service, it was going to be like, you guys were growing as well, or? We were going to, our big thing was that we wanted, and we were kind of onto something a little bit, was we wanted to get sun-grown weed from Northern California. And we wanted that to get that down into the hands of people like 
south, you know, south of San Francisco, like down to LA area kind of thing where it's, you know, a lot of warehouse OG, a lot of stuff from up here. But, you know, we were, we were uh, from day one, we were kind of just hooked into the out, like we want to get outdoor stuff because we knew we could get that cheaper than indoor. The plan was to set up, you know, like a warehouse or something so we would have our own thing going too. But, you know, initially to get it started, we were going to kind of play the old hustle that we knew was to go up to Humboldt area, get the guys down off the hill, go shopping, and, you know, we're going to do the same thing, just do it in California and not send it out of state. Right. And why was it outside of cost that you guys decided to do the outdoor? Did it, it was because you thought it was just as good? You mm-hmm. thought maybe it didn't look you didn't have that bag appeal maybe that the indoor did i don't know you know there was there's plenty of stuff that kind of had that appeal and i think like my my friend at the time was just kind of hooked into the fact that like most of these places weren't really selling high-end indoor they were what he visually saw from moving lots of packs was like he didn't have to ask is this indoor or outdoor i mean he visually could tell like the hustle is getting it from up north you know and getting 45, 50, and 8 for it. That, that was the hustle. Right. Still, you know, still kind of is. Yeah. That, you know, that was like boutique, the, like the really boutique stuff was really just kind of hitting the scene, I feel like, heavy. You know, bag appeals become a little bit more since then. Just in the last couple of years, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, everything is, pretty much everything is super kicked out. I mean, Yeah, now it's like, yeah, it's like it's all eyeballs and nothing else matters but for us personally being from wisconsin we always got cali outdoor that was fucking what we were always smoking it's like that's kind of what we were used to and you know once i got to california i quickly realized that like okay that the outdoor weed even though it doesn't look as good it gets it just for me it gets me more stuff it's a more more complex high broader spectrum of cannabinoids not just kind of that direct thc hit you know, like a lot of the indoor has. Not that any of the, you know, there's not good indoor. Yeah, indoor is good. Yeah. But I, you know, I as a personal preference as well, I like the outdoor. And I'm a little bit, I don't necessarily like it, but I'm a little bit of a hippie tree hugger inside. And I just, you know, I feel that why. So I was in Wisconsin growing on, you know, in basements under lights. And all I wanted to do was be able to put my shit outside. Where seems I like a pretty simple pay. request. Yeah, it seemed like soup. Dude, I'm from a farming community. And in a farming community, we don't grow our fucking tomatoes inside. We don't grow the corn inside, fields of corn inside. I mean, people might do that. That might become viable. But it was just naturally, it was like, if I have the ability to, I'm going to put it out under the sun. Or I'll get so much more light than I could ever indoors. And, you know, I was dreaming of these big plants. You know, these 10-pound plants from... Emerald Triangle, you know, the Jorge Cervantes videos, you know, Redwoods of Northern California, or, you know, what was it? The Giants of Northern California. I mean, little did I know I was going to end up working on that fucking farm. Like, Yeah, and, you know, that's kind of a whole subject on its own that I wanted to talk to you about is, I guess once you made that move up to Northern California, you know, again, just from social media, obviously, but you were heavily kind of tied in with, the Humboldt local. I, that was, uh, you know, kind of a, I didn't know the guy before I ever got to, I did not know who he was, you know, except for what little bit I had kind of gleaned through, you know, some of the Jorge videos and I was on some of the forums 
and it was like, damn, you know, there was these few guys kind of doing these ass motherfucking plants. And it was just a friend of mine, Jackie, that I was bouncing around with at the time. She kind of helped me get Resin Ranch off the ground. And uh, she was trimming a lot up north, you know. So I wasn't really plugged in up north. My friend was more plugged in. And she was trimming. And me and her were kind of bouncing around. And she was like, hey, you know, we can... We were pretty much kicked out of the house at that time. Long story, whatever. But I mean, she was like, hey, we could probably get jobs trimming or working on a farm in Emerald Triangle. Like, I know somebody up there. I know somebody up in Honeydew that, you know, probably let me work at their farm, probably let you work there. So we went up there and met Joey, the humble local who owns Trim Scene in Redway, through her. And the, I mean, the rest is kind of history. I think, you know, he's not a dumb guy. He's grown a lot of cannabis. I think he kind of realized pretty quickly like this guy's making some pretty crazy good hash and he's got you know a little something to bring to the table plus being a contractor for 20 years previous you know i got the work ethic plus the knowledge to go to a remote property and it'll take care of the place you know yeah i was going to ask you how that experience that you brought with you from that world has helped you you know that has that's everything you want to you wanna run a large outdoor farm, yeah, you better know how to grow weed. But on top of that, you also need to be an electrician, a plumber, a carpenter. Just generally, you need to know how to just do, do whatever to survive or to build something yourself or fix something or whatever it is. Because more of it, the majority of it is maintaining a property versus actually, I mean, that is growing the cannabis thing is that you kind of realize once you get up up there and out onto these some of these remote properties is that they just kind of both go hand in hand growing the cannabis it's just farming that's kind of just taking care of the property so if you take care of the property well the cannabis is going to grow well kind of thing you know and that that was that's all the skill that's truly the skill that you need so it's funny because it seems like you know you were talking about earlier how you you looked up to all these people that were, you know, on Hash Church or like that you knew about. And then, I mean, it was like pretty fast in the way that you came up. Would you attribute that in part to not only having the skill set, but also having that drive, like you said earlier? And then on top of that, having the work ethic. I think all those things involved and a little luck on top of it, you know, like. Like I said that I, you know, I knew who these people were from watching Hash Church. I knew that if I wanted to be in the industry, I was gonna have to get somebody to notice me. So like that first Emerald Cup that I went to, I went there with a bunch of hash that I had made with the intention of seeking these people out, gifting them my hash. And God, I hope that one of them likes it, you know, and something will happen of that. You know, and that's, you know, I, I attribute me coming up as quick as I did straight up to Ozzy and his wife, Cuban and his wife, seeing my dry sip, giving me a shout out on Hash Church, being like, you know, this random kid dropped the best hash of the weekend on us at Emerald Cup. And that was, that was it. Everybody wanted something from me. <laughs> that like, that was it. Uh, yeah, I guess that's how that works. Finger, nobody knew. Really, that I was like that fresh to the game, though, you know, like right. 
they just assume that like oh this dude's been banging it out forever is this good well, <laughs> which I you had been but in a different way right? yeah but you know I've really only been in the non-solvent thing even in Wisconsin for maybe a year and a half prior to that you know so and what made you go from the the, the BHO that you were blasting that first, to solvent just list. that first melty dab was like oh shit dude I was just like sold watching yeah. the bubble like you know back then everybody talked about clear domes you did hash on screens over a titanium nail, you know, and you got to watch it bubble. It's just like that whole experience that I was like, that just brought something different to the table for me. It was more, more of an involved experience than just right away. I saw BHO kind of as like, this is kind of like mainlining THC kind of thing. Just was like such a stoner and took two or three dabs and was like oh my god i've never been this high in my life you know like that was bho and i'm assuming that you were also learning the bho from from youtube or yeah dude like i you know i was watching youtube videos and then figuring this shit out on my own and being just not a dumb guy you know i'm not gonna blast inside i'm gonna be in the basement i think we were making some really clean stuff back then and not didn't even really know you know like, we barely even knew about testing. You'd read about that on the forums and, like, parts per million. But we didn't have any access to that. But we were blasting, you know, gold clear slabs back in Milwaukee, you know. <laughs> just, like, doing our thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 just seriously, that all it took was one halfway melty dab and I, of, like, real hash. And I was just like... And so were you, like, at that point, like, why blast it if it naturally... Yeah. My, so my whole, my kind of whole theory, I've always kind of been into the organic thing. I've done, you know, a lot of hydro growing back in the day in the basements and salts and cocoa. And I've done everything, but my best and my favorite experience was doing organic. So I've always kind of leaned more towards that. So my whole thing is always, from day one, kind of been like, even when I was indoor in Wisconsin and I was trying to do the organic thing, was like, I'm trying to do all this extra stuff to be organic and clean and then I'm just going to dump a chemical on it. Like that, to me, was just totally counterintuitive. I couldn't agree it with did, you more. It just didn't make a lot of sense in my head personally. So, yeah. you know, to gravitate more towards the natural ice and water and just dry screens was the natural progression for me. Yeah, and, you know, not that I, I tried, but... It's funny because I used to watch some videos on the on BHO as well when it first was like coming out and being, you know, the popular thing. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool or whatever, but not really thinking anything past it. And then as I learned kind of more about concentrates, which have just basically really blossomed the past maybe like five to 10 years at most, you know, it's kind of a new thing. Not that hash is a new thing, but all these kind of new forms of extraction mm-hmm. I think are and so new ways of consuming it yeah you know? yeah because of I guess also in part as a response to the changes so you know you take this super clean oil like how are you gonna you're not gonna like smoke it so dabbing comes along right and you just need a, a really hot surface to be able to to get it to, to do its thing that you know vaporize or whatever yeah Thing. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, now we know not too hot, but right. back in those days, you know, red hot skillets. And yeah. And so I, I think it's funny how, the, you know, we're around a similar age and like with legalization, how things changed and 
the internet also changed things and being able to essentially tap into stuff that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, social media and, you know, the, the forums really was where it kind of started, you know, a guy like me being 2,000 miles away from the scene could totally kind of tap into it. And that's what you were using on. to to do the girls of Wisconsin, it's like even the, the hydro yeah. setups and... Yeah, it was all forum talk, man, you know, asking people on the forums what was up. That's how all the information was spread. And so, you know, once you went to, I don't know, it seemed almost like you were running the Mendo hideout or at least a portion. Of yeah, it. I was just up there, you know, I, uh, I lived up there, so I was the one that was on site doing the, you know, the daily dirty work. Yeah. Kind of thing, yeah. Managing the place. But that's <laughs> where you, you really were growing the 10-footers that you... Yeah. Were. Word, that was people. where I got, like I said, God, little did I know I was going to end up on that exact farm that Jorge Cervantes had been at. You know, and you got to meet him as well, right? trees, and then I was going to get to meet the guy, like, holy shit, you just threw me onto, like, a movie set. Like, you know, just absolute dream come true, and God bless Joey. I love the guy. He really, really gave me an opportunity to blossom and blossom in this industry and just like as a human being man being able to be up at that property and take care of those huge plants you know and to be mentored by one of the guys from the forums that was growing those huge plants and like kind of busting out at the seams of what people thought we could get away you know that they could get away with you know he was doing you know, big Coles frame greenhouse is 10,000 square feet. Like that was, that was pushing the envelope for the, the times. It was really pushing the envelope for the times. you know, to yeah. just be out there. Like, yo, this is what we do. And like, we're not scared to say we do it, you know? That yeah. Was, I mean, it, it definitely was, takes, it. you know, it, it took a lot of courage, I'm sure, you know? Yeah. To, to and I, and I have a lot of respect for the guys who did this before you could do it under Prop 215, under Prop, you know, we kind of got away with a lot in Prop 215 there. It got, at the end, it got, it got to be a free-for-all. I mean, just huge fucking grows, huge greenhouse setups, huge depth operations. I mean, it just, it got a little bit ridiculous, but the guys that were doing it before all that was cool and not everybody up in those neighborhoods was down with it, you know, but they got on board when they saw how much money you could make and that you got away with it kind of thing. You know, those are the guys that I really have a lot of respect for because this industry would not be here if it was not for them. I mean, we're all walking on the backs of the originators, you know, you know, your Dennis Perrone's, you know, all those guys, everybody, you know, from back, anybody who stood on the front line you know, you owe credit to you because now we can stand there without a mask and, you know, voice our opinion that we're proud pot smokers and it's legal. You know, I like, couldn't always do that back in the day, so it took a lot of balls to, you know. Yeah, and I mean, especially in this area, you know, 50, 60 years maybe of, of it being kind of a, a staple industry around here and all of it essentially illegal up until, like you said, maybe Prop 215, yeah, and now, I mean, if you if you talk to anybody that went through the camp days, like I mean, it was it was rough back in the day. 
<laughs> you know, a lot of people, a lot of people got, I mean, that was a straight up military operation on American soil, you know? Yeah, I've seen little, you know, video clips of here. And I mean, yeah, it was just like, it looked like a military operation. And I, fingers crossed that the National Guard does not come in and attempt the same thing this year. Because I think that they will be met with quite a bit more resistance than camp was. And that could be violent and that could be ugly. You know? Prop 64 is taking, is taking the livelihoods of many a people. And it, a lot of people are now at their breaking point. They're at, you know, they're going on two or three years of trying to go through the permit process or just two or, the two or three year downhill struggle of losing your property slowly because the price goes down and you're being pushed out, you know? They're at the end of their rope, man. People are going to snap. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some people have a lifetime invested. Yeah, in this. that's the thing. People have multiple generations invested, and they're going to, you know, they're on the brink of losing it. Yeah, I've uh, I've heard Prop 64 definitely hasn't necessarily been what maybe people thought that it was going to be. Um, no, they 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 brought us into rooms when we were all voting on Prop 64, and before all the regulations hit, they brought us into seminars and rooms and how great this is going to be and how we're going to forgive all this stuff in the past and, you know, we're going to create this great avenue for transition. And then when it hits, it's, we're going to take all that away and we're actually going to backdoor big money in. We told you to your face, we weren't going to let in, you know, it's, that's what's killing it. And then the state is just falling flat on their fucking face with it. I mean, at this point they said, you know, by this time that they would expect to have like, 2,000, you know, retail outlets throughout the state, and there's something like less than 150 licensed. Where does any farmer, where, where the fuck is their shit supposed to go? Yeah, in a state as big as California. In a state as big as California with what, like the fourth largest economy in the world, and everybody's growing weed, but it's got nowhere, there's nowhere for it to go. There's no re legal retail outlet for it to go to. So when you really start thinking about that, it's like it's no wonder nobody's getting paid from distributors. It's no wonder people are actually taking product back from distributors. Like, it's not even technically legal to do. And no wonder distributors are being, you know, they're getting hit just as hard as the farmers right now. There's just, there's no room for anybody to wiggle whatsoever. So they've created a, you know, pretty strong black market. I mean, it's almost pushed people it, more into it. Or I didn't want to say it. You did. They straight up pushed us into it i mean it's like this this is all so i the way i say it the way i put it to people because you have farmers who aren't happy about having to do illegal activity they want to be 100 percent legal so i tell them look it's not it's not a matter of right and wrong it's not a matter of legal or illegal it's just a matter of they didn't give you any wiggle room to transition so if you don't play one side you are not going to survive on the other if you want your legal operation, you need to play in the black market or the open market, as I like to call it now. That's just, that's what the state created. You know, there's just no room for transition. You can't expect somebody, you know, to not grow for three years while they get a permit or just, you know, something as asinine as that. Well, what else is the guy going to do for income? You don't give him any time to do anything else. He's so buried in paperwork, you know, and then you can't, 
try and work your way through all the regulations. It's like you need a you know, fucking 10 year degree just to decipher what they've written, you know? So, um, would you say those are essentially the major hurdles with Prop 64 is just regulation is regulation, regulation, regulation. You know, there's, we're just, we're made to do things and required to do things that nobody would ever be required to do just because it's cannabis. I mean, alcohol is way more dangerous than cannabis. I think just about everybody can agree on that, but they're treating cannabis like we're working with plutonium or something. I mean, this is fucking ridiculous, dude. Yeah, well, definitely on, you know, the toxicity list, alcohol is, you know, I think almost at the top and cannabis is pretty, pretty down there. So on that alone. um, Yeah, I mean, just the packaging for a company to figure out the packaging is going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars and months and months and months because there's, this can go on this panel, that has to be on that panel, this symbol needs to be here, that symbol needs to be there, this needs to be child resistant, this needs to be child proof, this needs to be tamper evident, this needs to be tamper proof, all those things have different definitions and they're all, they all have to be on the same box. So it's like, how do I, it's like trying to, you know, fit 10 houses on one lot. It's like, wait a minute, I've only got so much room. You know, like how, how much bullshit are you going to make me do? And that's just the packaging. You're not even getting into the guy growing it and all the crap he's got to do. You know, it just, once I, you know, was fully submersed in it, it just, it, the hypocrisy is insane. And it's just, it's laughable how, how stupid some of this shit is. I mean, it's just like, all you can do is laugh because... Nobody else, nobody else would be held to these standards. You know, I mean, the testing standards, just like, look at that alone. You know, your food's got all the fucking chemicals we can't have on cannabis. Now, like, I want clean cannabis, don't get me wrong. But it's like, you know, with like the phase three testing and the heavy metals. Oh, did you use, you know, chicken manure? I don't use chicken manure. I think it's pretty dirty. But if you do, you're going to come up positive in heavy metal tests. Guarantee it. You know, all the foods you're eating are covered in heavy metals. It's just, they just are holding us to a different standard. We just want to be treated equally, you know? And so, you know, tying that back into that experience that you had at the Emerald Cup and learning from that, it looked like now, or it looks like now your your IPM, you know, I guess strategy or like regimen has changed a lot. And I, I guess, can you just tell uh, people more about that yeah that definitely kind of brings it full circle again yeah the whole emerald cup experience and failing for pyrethrum you know spraying of chemicals that was a huge huge learning experience for me just as a i mean just generally like of what goes on in the world how our produce is treated what we actually chemicals we put out into nature and the season after that, we fucking upped our IPM game. That would be integrated pest management for those of you out there that don't know. And we went full no spray, which is like, that's, I mean, that's like insane. To most people in the Emerald Triangle, that's just like going full retard. Like, pardon, I mean, I like use that word a lot, but it's like, you're not going to spray. Like, okay, you are going to have the worst season of your life. And, what I've learned through that process 
and it took a fearless leader is that there is nothing that's bad. There is no bad bug. There is no bad pathogen. They all have a place. You need to create a balanced environment is all you need to do. You don't need to either spray and kill everything. Then you're probably going to have problems because most of the pests that we deal with are opportunistic. So, you know, if they come across a plot of cannabis and there is not one beneficial insect there that is going to at all mess with their population. Well, where do you think they're going to hang out? And what do you think is going to happen with their population? It's going to explode. And I started noticing as we didn't spray, that the people that did spray, I saw them have more problems and more problems and more problems. And as we went into their gardens, we realized that there's just nothing else here. There's nothing but cannabis. There's no pollinators. There's no beneficial insects. But there's a bunch of bad stuff. And that's because they're not balancing out the, their environment. They're just straight killing stuff off by spraying. When you spray, you know, you're gonna just killing stuff off, killing stuff off, killing stuff off. But there's, you know, just as many beneficial insects as there are bad bugs, as we call them. In KNF, Green Natural Farming, Master Cho says there is there are no bad bugs. They all, you know, they all have a place. It's just balance them and control them. You know, most most gardens are not actually russet white free. It's just that they have a balanced ecosystem, so they're kept in check. That's what we learned about IPM. <laughs> well, and it makes sense, you know. <coughs> Nature has has a balance, and I mean, I think when humans try to we don't do do, do too much, or yeah, you know, it, exactly. it's like we do not know better than Mother Nature. We need to get off of our high horse. Like we do not know better, and when you create a balanced environment, man, she takes care of that. She takes care of the situation. Yeah, and you know. I spoke to Brandon and Amanda from the Garden of Greece in, in Oregon and about this, but it's kind of cool to see farms bringing back this regenerative mindset. Yeah, and that's one thing I think that as a community, a cannabis community, we, we can do, and that's one thing I see this industry hopefully doing is rubbing off on other industries and getting them to open their eyes and think a little more holistically about things and then you know, get big egg, you're starting to see some of big egg get away from just spraying chemicals and they're starting to use beneficial insects on a large scale. You know, those are all good things. Yeah, I love love Kirk and Amanda. They're great. Garden of Grease. Yeah, they're super guys. cool people. They get it. They get it. And it's like we all have a place on this earth. Just, you know, live within it, not try to control it. Yeah, and you were i guess when you were at the farm it was certified dem pure yeah we we, we got uh, dem pure certified in 2017 that was uh definitely a goal of joey the humble local that was he was my fearless leader on that i wasn't even looking at those things i was just too busy you know kind of working, working. <laughs> yeah. you know and he would come up with all you know what i thought at the time were kind of crazy ideas like hey we're gonna you know mix a bunch of sugar and fruit together and that's how we're gonna feed a plaque these were all crazy ideas to me you know i was like what the fuck is this guy doing you know like what's he coming up with but you know i followed his lead and he took us in the right direction that's for sure so did he know about knf or he kind of got into it as i did like i know i started learning about it started reading about it he was the one that you know kind of i would say for almost forced me into it because it was like hey we're gonna do this and I'm the one, you know, I was the one given the task of making this stuff. So it was like, okay, now I got to go watch this YouTube video. 
I gotta go seek out this Chris Trump guy and like I gotta read about these things because I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to, you know, be the guy up here on the farm just fucking off and messing shit up. Like I, I want this place to succeed. So, you know, I was the one, you know, kind of thrown in to the fray and figured out, you know, started mixing stuff and just kind of playing with it. And we started, you know, we started seeing the effects firsthand. And that's, that's the best, for me, that's the best evidence, you know, is what, what I see firsthand by what we've done. And, you know, we were... The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding, I guess you would say, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we were talking earlier about something else and just saying how our bodies, you know, can tell us, even with food, you know, how how it's feeling or how it's reacting and the same goes with the plants oh yeah they right? they're so. speaking to you you just gotta you know you just gotta give them what they what they want what they need but yeah i mean i was totally like the, the whole kmf thing i was kind of like what is this what is this hippie magic <laughs> honestly and it, it's fucking hippie magic no it's not really hippie magic but it's it's legit man like the shit is legit when you get into it, you really start implementing it. Like it's things turned around in the plants. I mean, they just, things got healthier. Things got, I mean, that was the year, that was the year that I kind of stopped dabbing because the flower was so good. You know, it was the first year we kind of delved into the KNF. It was like, everything was just so turped out. It was fucking, it was just the same. And the word that I, I kept kind of seeing throughout your posts regarding KNF is gentle, you know, kind of gently it's feeding. Gen- gently farmed, man. It's gentle. It's, you know, it's easy on the environment. You know, we're not, we're, we're, what we're doing and what we're pouring on the soil is beneficial. We're helping out the land. We want to be stewards of the land. We want to rejuvenate the soil, you know, that. Well, and then. That's going to help your cannabis get better, which is going to make it easier sell which is going to make your business do better and then that just overall this might sound hokey but that helps the planet out <laughs> yeah um building soil rejuvenating the soil yeah and on top of it you get pretty good weed out of yeah it. you get you get all the benefits you get nothing right. but benefits yeah. i mean so it's a great relationship it's definitely one-sided would you say it takes more work in the beginning i think it takes more work because it's it's not natural to you but after it becomes kind of natural, then yeah, it's totally like, it's totally less work. It's like, actually maybe why, more sustainable. Yeah. And it's way more sustainable. I mean, and it sustainable in the sense of the environment, sustainable in the sense of a business. I mean, it, it's so much cheaper. It took so much less labor. Like, you know, that was one reason we could do 10,000 square foot permit with basically one guy being up on the property because he isn't having to deal with all this extra stuff of mixing chemicals and like doing all these different waterings and yada yada you know it was once a week of hand watering and you know whatever ferments and teas we made and the rest is on trip and it's like you just kind of walk around playing pot grower and staring at the weed <laughs> <laughs> and then smelling it like it's uh, once yeah, it's flowering right? you come home with your face just kind of nose sticky your mustache the like face charas. Yeah, face charas, pretty much. <laughs> but now you kind of have moved on, and now you're kind of going to do your own thing, resin. Yeah, ranch. now I'm, uh, I'm kind of just trying to focus on resin ranch, and uh, I mean, right now, I'll be honest, I'm just trying to pay bills and find my place in this industry, which 
isn't an easy thing to do, especially when you don't necessarily agree with a lot of what you're trying, you know, the, like the, the field you're trying to play in, I guess. It's kind of hard, hard to word, but when you'll get it when I say this, one day you're a criminal and the next they just want their cut. And their cut is criminal. I mean, it's straight up mob shit. You know, you got some places want 10% of gross right off the top. I mean, how do you expect a business to survive? You just took that business as profit, you know? I mean, so it's like, do you really want to play in the Prop 64 era? I mean, I... Right, like we said earlier. Guess yeah. I'll, I'll guess I'll say that I am... I will be honest and say that I'm kind of at a crossroads right now. You know, not sure which direction I want to go. And I'm kind of just letting it play itself out. Well, and, you know, what's unfortunate about that, I feel, is, like, I think you, if it were kind of a fair or leveled playing field, you, uh, yeah, I'm sure you'd do it, you know, the legal route. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I want to, and yeah. it's kind of, kind of back to, like, what, what motivated me to move out here was that Prop 64 was coming down the line. If you're not an idiot, whether you voted for it or not, you knew, you knew it was going to pass. That's what it was like the second or third time that California was going to pass, was going to vote on legalization. They had voted it down, you know, the other times. We had so many states that were now going legal that you knew California was going to pass. It was like California wants, you know, they want that crown. Like, we're the first to do anything, yada, yada. But they just, they just, they're just messing it up, man. Like, they took their hand, they took a good thing, they got their hands on it. They just fucked it all up. Do you think there's room for essentially boutique hash makers? I think there will be. I think there is right now because you can play both sides of the line. I'm just fucking be honest. I'm not going to call anybody out. But like that's the reality of the market right now is everybody's on both sides of the line. Everybody with a license, everybody with a permit is playing both sides of the line. That's how they're surviving. When annuals come out and everybody's beholden to track and trace... It's quickly going to weed out who's going to have shelf space and who's not. And I think, I think there will, everybody talks about this boutique market. It will be there. I'm not, it's not there right now on the rec market. The general public has proven that they like, I mean, just look at like alcohol sales. I mean, yes, craft beers are doing much better, but historically, and even to this day, Budweiser sells the best. The mids sell, man. Well, I mean, there everybody, has to be something for the masses. You know, yeah, not, not everybody wants, like, connoisseur no, stuff, right? No, not everybody can afford it. That's a big point, yeah. You know, and most people can't afford it. That's the general public. So, yeah, I mean, it's... I think that we will get there right out of the gate. No, I think is if you're just a boutique, like, you're going to... You might have problems. Unless you already have cut that out. Like, don't get me wrong. There's people who... We're there from day one, who in the last two years have really done a good job of getting them, their brand out there that, you know, they have shelf space already, they're going to stick. But if you're trying to create a new, small craft boutique brand in the next three years, it just I just don't see any way you're going to make it. Best thing you can do is get into a relationship where somebody's willing to just white label your product, put it into their packaging, you know, and get under a contract. I think that's a good situation for a farm to be in. We'll get there. It's just, I don't think we're going to be there right out of the gate. Take some time. Yeah, it's going to take some time. And so, as a as essentially a process right now, in a way, would that be something that, like, you'd be open to, for example? 
what you just said about, I guess, getting under an umbrella of somebody else who's growing, or are you going to be, you, would you oh, be doing I'm your not, own thing? At my age and the point in my life, I'm would, not at all against going to work for somebody, like, for a good salary. You right. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I'll go process for somebody. It's gonna, you know, it's got to be the right situation. Though. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're giving up a lot of freedom. You're going back to a nine-to-five. Yeah. You're kind of getting back into the system that's slowly killing out your friends, you know? It's a little of a catch-22 to it. It is. It is. Yeah. But in part, yeah, that's why I was kind of curious, you know? Like, yeah, no, you, you caught me at a, at a definite point where I'm not sure which direction I want to go. But, you know, doing kind of this boutique processing... Is it hard to find good people to work with? And, and good people, I also mean growers, because obviously that's where it's all coming from. Yeah, I mean, uh, the ultimate goal for me always is just to, been, to be a single source hash maker. Okay. Uh, but as you now know from listening to this, I haven't been out here that long. Right. It's, you know, exp- property is expensive out here. Getting into just finding the right situation that, you know, makes the single source even possible is taking some time definitely processing other people's material and putting it under your brand yeah that's kind of the biggest the biggest hurdle is finding consistent quality once you find those guys you you make sure to create a good relationship with them so that you can keep you know working with them yeah you know and again something that that i spoke to cam about is just like that seems like it would be a huge thing as a hash maker, regardless of where you are, unless you're doing single source and that's like your only focus is you have to essentially have a relationship with a grower who's producing really good starting material. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's the best situation. If you can be, you know, one-on-one relationship with a grower who basically you grow all the stuff, we'll process all the stuff. And what do you think, so obviously the hash maker is looking for good material, someone who's maybe consistent, but what do you think the grower is looking for outside of like the, the relationship you develop with them in a hash maker? Somebody that's going to represent their product in a way that I think aligns with their beliefs, with their business. You know, if somebody's, you know, growing a B grade product and expecting you to put out an A grade an A-grade product from it, that relationship's probably not going to work. You know, you got to kind of got to both be on the same playing field. And a farmer is looking for somebody who is going to do it, I guess, in a timely fashion. You know, it's, you know, obviously things happen and, you know, there's a process to all this, but they don't want to be sitting around waiting forever to, you know, get paid or whatever the relationship or the deal is. Right. You know, like there's from harvest to kind of getting things off to processors in the next season. I mean, there's there's not a lot of months in there, you know? It's pretty much December, January, February, and if you're running an outdoor scene, you're firing up in March again. So, you know, you gotta get, kind of got three months to get everything out, processed, and that money back in to go on to the next season. Yeah, it's it always seems there's that the, the big crunch, right? Yeah, like There's like, yeah, the winter time is always just like work, 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 work. And then the spring comes and it's work, 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 work. <laughs> yeah, the work so it kind of just never ends. But as a farmer, you, you know, I think as a, uh, for me personally, if I was a farmer at this point, I just want to be paid for my work. 
I don't care about splits. I don't want to know about anything. I just want to be paid an honest, fair price up front for my work. And what you do with it, I don't care. Now, it's probably a little more profitable to get involved in what they do with it, but right. to each their own. You know? I, we haven't talked about this really, but it's tied into essentially what we're talking about is I read a post that I found really interesting of yours where you mentioned that fresh freezing the bud would actually be the lowest taxation for a grower. Yeah, it's the it's the lowest tax bracket, basically. And you know, why is that? Because it just seems so fascinating to me. I, I don't I don't have any any insight to why the <laughs> theories that the state has of why they did the tax brackets the way that they do it. So fresh I think frozen. It's a, lack, a lack of knowledge. They don't really understand what's going on with what. You know, it just falls like into this category where it. Well, there's rip. there's just different tax categories. There's flower, for you know flower. There's a tax category, trim. There's a separate tax category, and you know basically frozen material. There's a separate tax category. Now there's things that you can do to mess with the system a little bit. Right. You know, like people are grinding up whole plants and they're calling that trim. It's not technically trim, and like you're getting away with it now. But after four years of, you know, paperwork and the state being like, "But you're cannabis growers and you only grow trim," well, that doesn't make sense to <laughs> right. us. You know, it's just it's it's a lower tax bracket, but it's I think creating right now a situation where too many people are freezing their weed and people that shouldn't be freezing weed are freezing weed. Like, just because it's frozen doesn't mean it's good. Like, that's a big misnomer against, you know, amongst growers is that like, oh, if I fresh freeze it, I can get a really good ticket for it. You, dude, fresh frozen, it could be complete crap. I mean, it could be worth nothing to me or the hydrocarbon extractor. You know, you got to you gotta kind of test that out, you know, play those waters. And the people that have done it over the last few years, now they're, they know what's up. They know the ins and outs of fresh frozen and they're crushing it. The guys just getting into it are kind of, you know, flailing a little bit. There's a lot of fresh frozen out there. So by saying that by fresh freezing it, it doesn't necessarily make a good product. I'm sure there's like various factors that play into it not making a good product. But what are is like the main thing that can go wrong that simply you put this material through and it just is not producing yeah, anything? It's just, it's just not something. It's just not a cultivar or a phenotype that we would work with, period. Right. You know, it just doesn't produce anything. It might not produce any oil if they blast it, you know. It's just, it might have it might have been better as flour, you know. But it, that's kind of the process of cannabis is you kind of, you kind of, kind of just figure this shit out a little bit. You know, it's touch and go sometimes and trial and error a lot with cannabis. Do you think that if it wasn't for things like live resin growers would still freeze it assuming that they could turn it into either water hash or eventually rosin or something or do you think that plays a big role in why people are also holding back this material and, and freezing it outside of the tax bracket well a lot of it a lot of it is because people hear that oh if i fresh freeze it i'm going to get either this much per pound of fresh frozen or i'm going to be able to give it to an extractor and do splits you know they they hear these things from their friends that you know are doing good so they freeze all their blue dream and nobody can do anything with it down the road 
You know, well, you, what's kind of like comical a is a lot of people don't have the room to dry as much cannabis as they're growing right now either. It's a big factor, so it's kind of become "quote unquote" the lazy man's harvest in a way where just oh, chop it, freeze space. it. Let's just chop it. They don't even deleaf it; like they just, just bag the whole fucking there. thing, put it in the freezer. Well, that's you know, that's I don't want that. The hydrocarbon guy doesn't want that. You know, having all that extra water weight in there and leaf weight that messes with our averages, that messes with our at least on a non-solvent, it's gonna mess with the quality a little bit. You know, so it's like there there are ins and outs and things that you should and things that you shouldn't to fresh frozen, you know. Just not everything needs to be frozen. You gotta run those test batches. That's the biggest thing for me, is you can get out there. You know, 10 days or so before harvest, you can take a little bit down, you can freeze it, you can hash it, and you can see pretty much what's there. Okay, this is fucking amazing. Everybody get out there tomorrow and get all this in the freezer as quick as you can. Or, okay, that sucked, we'll just take it down to flour or distill it, whatever the case may be. But freezing it might not be the option, you know, the best option. Yeah, and... It's just kind of almost ironic that, you know, there's as much as misinformation there is like on the consumer side, there's also misinformation even coming from oh, like yeah. the grower side, you know, yeah, the whole gamut in the cannabis industry is just misinformation. Misinformation in the extraction side. Yeah, it's, um, it's everywhere. I don't, I don't know how it ever got like that. I don't know if it's people trying to protect what they have, they just lie about what they're doing or if it's just... I think a lot of people haphazardly jump into this industry and that has a lot to do with it. It's just, you know, oh, you get into cannabis, you're going to make money. Well, probably not. <laughs> you're probably going to lose your ass now, honestly. You know, 10, 15 years ago, yeah, if you had the balls to jump into cannabis, you probably were going to be rewarded for it. Yeah, you know? it was a big risk, high yeah, risk, high reward. High risk, high reward, exactly. And, um, you know, just just one more thing on the fresh frozen is that I'm, I, I love working with fresh frozen. Like, don't, I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way. I'm, I prefer working with fresh frozen. It's just, if everything is done properly, there's nothing wrong with dried material. And honestly, for the rec market, it might make more sense to use freshly dried than stored properly material, which stored properly either means frozen to preserve the terpenes or nitrogen sealed to preserve all those terpenes. You're gonna get a you know probably a longer shelf life. It just makes more room. It makes more sense as a business to not have all that freezer space. You know, you can have warehouse space of barrels filled with dry flour that's been nitrogen sealed. That's now possibly good for a few years to extract. And if you get that really fresh, freshly dried material, I mean, it makes it makes just as good as fresh frozen. Yeah, and that's a big. Uh I feel like I'm sort of controversy amongst yeah. hash makers. And, and I don't, I don't want like hash makers to get too caught up in like with what they do of thinking about which is better. It's just fresh frozen to me. It's more of logistics. You know, Frenchie has talked about it for years and, you know, has proven it. It's like, you can just go out in the field on a cold night, pull that shit off the plant, run it through water and ice and boom, there's your hash fresh, just fresh. Freezing it is kind of just logistics because that, doesn't make sense. I can't, I can't hash, you know, your whole field overnight or over three nights, you know, and the weather might not, you know, agree. So to me, it's always just been more of a logistic thing. So it's not because it's frozen necessarily that, you know, 
I think there's a misconception that these the trichomes are like just breaking off because they're so brittle. That yeah, it's cool. you know that that is. Uh, I think that's total total. To me, that's a total misconception because we we do a pretty long thaw on the material before we work it. We pretty much put it in ice and water and completely thaw it out before we even mix it. So it has nothing to do with it being frozen and brittle. You know. Right. And and some stuff frozen won't give you any returns, and when it's dry, it'll dump. That's interesting. That's so, something I didn't know. mind will go on for days about this. Tom will go on and on and on. Like he's, I know he's and very I, pro I, dry I, material. Yeah, and I and I and like I, I agree with the guy in a sense. Like, totally can agree with these, but I I would prefer still. I think it's just for me in my situation, it's easier for it to be frozen. So, again, it's logistics. Yeah, and I don't think there's a right and wrong way. And, and to be honest, that's in part like what I hope people get from these interviews is like everybody yeah. does something different. Yeah, and like, I'll do something different. We all have different preferences in the end. So, and, but the products can be just as, as high quality. Yeah, and know? all of us started out just trying to make something that we like. So, and that's what I continue to do is I try continue to put up what I would prefer. And if that's not for you, then that's just fine. You know. So one of my last questions is, what is the future of your sifting? That's interesting. I thought about that a lot lately because there's just like. The financials of doing dry sift in my situation right now just don't, they don't compute. I don't have a large farm that I'm attached to, so I don't have large quantities of cheap material to roll, you know, run over the screens. And uh, most farmers aren't looking to do dry sift unless it's for personal stash. So, I mean, we'll, we'll always be putting out some dry sift, but it'll just be, you know, it's a here and there kind of thing. And your when you do put it out, typically the the one eighty is your do one eight we do one I like I prefer one eighty LPI. Final cleaning is done on a one eighty. Okay. And yeah, I mean you you always seem like pretty open about your tech. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean I've learned everything I learned about dress up I learned watching YouTube videos. It's just um, the fact that I actually went out and bought those screens, put material on them, worked it. And figured out that oh this works this doesn't work another thing was trying to produce larger amounts versus just like personal amounts that totally changed you know my steps that i would use but yeah i mean it's still just a matter of throwing it over a screen collecting it up staticking it out and then carting it on a 180 for the final clean yeah like you said it's not it's magic it's just a lot of hard work it's a lot of work yeah my last question and it might be a little hard or and I guess you could be biased in some ways or whatever which is part of the question but your favorite three hash makers your three hash makers are probably Look Sauce Winery Kush Kirk up there at Garden of Greece and who's my third Having a problem thinking of it, but it's probably gonna be an easy third once I think of who the third is. There's just something like trying to go through my head. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people. Is, and I got it. I mean, I got it. I got to put it's two people though. I got to put Cuban and his wife in there as the top. Yeah, of and I Still you know count them day. as one for sure. Because he's always been on. They've always been on their own trip. They still are. 
Like they still, they dry hash different than anybody. Like he's still sifting. They both crush it out. They both have given, you know, me a lot of respect and have, you know, just by voicing their opinion on me back in the day, gave me a place in this industry. So, yeah, I'd say those are my three favorite. Cool. Well, man, it was really fun sitting down with you, kind of talking shop. And, yeah, this was interesting. You know, so I, again, I appreciate your time. Thank People you. that want to follow you, your tag on Instagram is at. Yeah, I'm at Resin Ranch Extraction underscores in between. So that's at Resin underscore. underscore ranch underscore extraction. Just because I've been deleted so many times in my early days that I've had to come up with so many names <laughs> that we had to put the underscores in there. And uh, that's really that's really the only social media I'm on. Yeah, cool. Likewise, I, mostly Instagram for me. Pictures are definitely more more my thing, but you can have text as well. So awesome! I appreciate it, man. This was fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.